You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. So if you have a Bible, let's uh, take 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the, passions, in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. In holiness, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So, we need to notice that, and like I mentioned, there's already a change of tone, and even the topic, if you didn't catch it, it's going to be sexual immorality. Um, Previous to this, Paul has been talking about the Thessalonian church as a really great church. Actually, in chapter 1, he says that they became examples to the churches around them. He commends them for the love and the work uh, that they've uh, done for the gospel. He actually loves them so much, he ends up sending uh, Timothy, who was Paul's companion. Paul continues to say in the previous chapter, chapter 3, that he couldn't even... Uh, stand it anymore to be apart from them. He wanted to go and visit them, but Satan somehow blocked him or or did not allow him to do that. And uh, so he sends Timothy. Timothy goes, spends some time with them. Then Timothy comes back and tells Paul, they love you too. It's a a two-way thing. Uh, You love them, they love you. And so he actually wants the best for them. He, there's no, um, there's nothing that's like scandalous about this church. But then, out of, after he prays for them in chapter 3 and he encourages them to, to grow in their love for each other, he suddenly just switches gears and starts talking about sexual immorality. And that's a little odd. Um, verse 1 actually says that this is an urgent matter. He urges the church. The tone for, from Paul switches from, like, you guys are great to, like, we need, to, we need to worry about this, or this is an important topic. So the first thing that I want to I, I highlight for us in this, in this uh, text is that God's purpose for us or God's will for us is our sanctification. And this is not something that, and I'm going to explain what sanctification is, but this is not something that's lightly. He says this is urgent. I urge you in the, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this also let us know that this is not just Paul's idea. This is something that God wants. The purpose of this command that he gives him about abstaining from sexual morality is 
for them to walk in a way that pleases God. And then he literally says that this is God's will for us, our sanctification. God calls us to that in verse 7. So in, in, in summary, we can easily say that our sanctification is something that God wants for us, and it's important for him. It's an urgent matter. So what is sanctification? So the, the literal definition of the Greek word in this text is the act of becoming more personally dedicated to God. That's literally the, de the, the definition of that word. But as Christians, we have a doctrine called sanctification. And the doctrine of sanctification would be uh, summarized some, in some sense as saying that it is, it is a process of becoming more like Jesus as a part of our salvation. And if you are familiar with the golden chain of salvation outlined for us in Romans 8, uh, sanctific sanctification is part of the process of salvation. We would say it's called election, uh, faith, justification, um, sanctification, and then eventually glorification. That's kind of like the idea of, of salvation. Salvation is not a one-time event, it's also a process. So part of that process is our sanctification, and it is the process in which God is making us more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 actually says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image image. So there is a process in which we as Christians are being shaped, molded, made more like Christ, and this is the process called sanctification that Paul is talking about. Other, top, or other passages in the Bible talk about sanctification as the process of us decreasing and God increasing in us. This is also part of the process that Paul describes as it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So this is sanctification. A process in which we are purified, molded, shaped, made more like Christ. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians, and us as well, that God's will for us is precisely that we are purified, sanctified, molded, shaped. And this is not Paul's idea. This is not Paul's agenda. This is a command. This is something that comes from God, and it's something that pleases God. So when we talk about sanctification, when we talk about the, the process of being shaped into, into be becoming more like Christ, we're talking about something that pleases God. And we are actually called to walk in this way. We are called to walk in a continuous state of being shaped to become more like Christ, in a continuous uh, process of being purified and cleansed. And that is something that's going to continue until we see God. In fact, Paul says, you are already doing it, but I want you to do it more and more. But there's something important here that some Christians struggle with, and uh, in more reform circles, is also a little bit of a, a, a confusion. Uh, what do you mean by pleasing God? How, what do you mean by walking in a way that pleases God? 
Because we have, as a gospel-centered church, this language of Jesus has paid it all. Jesus already satisfied God's wrath, and Jesus pleased God already on our behalf. So what do you mean I need to walk in a way that pleases God? So I just want to make sure that we understand as Christians that even though we are saved and that Jesus has already satisfied God on our behalf and that one day we're going to face God face to face and we're going to see, we're going to be in front of a great throne and we're going to be judged, the verdict on that day is going to be, you have satisfied me. Everything has been paid. Welcome into eternity. That's going to be the, the final verdict on that day. But at the same time, we are to live in a way in which we satisfy, we please God daily. Yes, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Yes, through the work of Jesus on the cross, we will, we will always be welcomed and loved by God, but we have the ability to displease God on our daily or with our daily walk. So Paul is encouraging a good church, and, and some people compare the Thessalonian church with the Corinthian church, which is similar, uh, almost the opposite of it. If you read the letter to the church in Corinth, you'll realize that there's all kinds of messes happening. And, and, and maybe some people would say this sounds more like an encouragement to the church in Corinth. But the reality is that Paul is encouraging a good church because all Christians are part, are in the process of sanctification. Pleasing God is a consequence of, us, of our salvation. If you are a Christian, you now have the ability and the will to want to please God. That is something we did not have, we didn't have before. Before Christ, we were completely unable to please him. In fact, before Christ, we didn't even have the intention to do it at all. Paul commands us to live in a way that pleases God, and that is part of our process of sanctification. We need to pay attention to what's happening with our lives. We need to pay attention uh, in the, of the process in which we are now, which is... We are decreasing, and God is increasing. And to be honest, and to be truthful, this is a process that is not easy, and it's not pain-free. In fact, our sanctification requires a lot of work. Our sanctification requires some tears. It's similar, and, and this is the language that the Bible uses. The Bible uses the language of God as a father, and us as children, right? And that's, that's the language that God has used throughout Scripture. We are his children, and he is our father. And if you are a parent, you can easily understand sanctification because this is what you do with your kids every day. You love them. You like them. You would give your life for them. But on a daily basis, they get on your nerves. And they do things that you don't want them to do. And this is something that I have to constantly remind my kids of. And I would like for you to hear it. That even though God loves us, he is constantly correcting us. He is constantly teaching us. 
He is molding us. He is maturing our lives. And I'm pretty sure, and, and biblically speaking, God would say the same thing, and actually I took this from the Bible, that I say to my kids. And I tell my, I tell my kids, when I'm angry at you, when I discipline you, that doesn't mean that I don't love you. In fact, I do it because I love you. And even though daddy's angry, that doesn't change dad's love for you. The only thing that changes is that sometimes you do things that make me happy, and sometimes you do things that make me angry. But the love is always the same. And that's, in a way, God's posture towards us as his children. He never changes how much he loves us. He's already given Christ for us. And in the end, we will be completely absolved of everything, and he, he, will, welcome us into, he will welcome us into eternal life. Yet, on a daily basis, he's maturing us, and we do things that are not pleasing to him. So the call for us in this text this morning is for us to understand that God's will for us is to be purified continuously. Yes, Jesus has paid for our, for our sins. He has made us completely clean before the Father, but there's things that we need to work on. And Paul makes an urgent call to the church in Thessalonica, addressing a very specific issue in our sanctification. Our sanctification encompasses all kinds of different issues. But he specifically talks about one, which is sexual immorality. And sexual immorality, addressing sexual immorality in the church, which is the context that we have here, is important. It's urgent. And it's God's will for us. This is not something that we should only address in today's society. No. This is something that we need to address constantly. This is a command for everyone. This is a command to the faithful and to the mature Christian as much as it is to the unfaithful and the immature Christian. This is an urgent command to the entire church. Even churches that are doing well, like the church in Thessalonica. Sexual immorality is a sin that is pervasive and now even accepted in our society. And we have a tendency to think that things are worse now, but let me just tell you and clarify that if you think back to the first century at the Roman Empire, they were not better than us. In fact, they had categories that we now have that they didn't have at all. Sexual immorality in the Roman Empire was rampant. Almost everything that we see today was present back then, and sometimes even more. So Paul is not speaking to a different context entirely in that sense. In that culture, polygamy was not a problem. Rape was sometimes not even talked about and sometimes even accepted. Prostitution, there was even cults who practiced it. Child abuse, what defines a child back then? Human trafficking, common as well. Incest, everything. All kinds of sexual deviations were happening in a culture that had no, almost an open hand to all these things. 
So Paul addresses this in a culture that, in a way, is very similar to ours. The call for sexual purity or to abstain from sexual immorality is a call to the entire church and to men and women alike. Paul calls the church to abstain, to avoid practicing. And the word that Paul uses here is it's a word that is repeated 25 different times in the New Testament. And it's a word that it almost never specifically tells us what kind of practices they're talking about. The word is porneia, and it's a Greek word that basically encompasses anything that goes against what the Bible prescribes for sexual activity. Some theologians have defined porneia as illicit sexual activity from a biblical standpoint. So this is a very general inclusive word for any kind of sexual immorality. It's a word that uh, basically limits sexual intercourse or activity to the confines of marriage. So since the word does not specify which kinds of sexual activity are immoral, we have to resource now to the word of God and, and understand that scripture defines that any sexual activity outside of marriage is off limits. So we could easily say and confidently say that any activity outside of the context of marriage is considered porneia. Anything that involves more than one person, either virtually or in person, is part of porneia. And this is what Paul is saying. Abstain from sexual immorality. And in today's culture, I would have to make sure that I, I, I say that when I say marriage or biblical marriage, I mean the covenant between one man and one woman. God urgently commands the church to abstain from practicing idol adultery, fornication, rape, incest, pornography, prostitution, homosexuality, polygamy, pedophilia, and any other activity that is not confined to the covenant of one man and one woman in marriage. And Paul says something interesting. He tells the church that everyone will learn to control themselves, control their body. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? Verse 4 says that each one of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness. Holiness means separated and in honor, but we're not necessarily told yet uh, honor to what or to whom. But Paul continues and, and, and gives, us, gives us a little bit more light. He says in verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. He's comparing our way of responding to somebody else's way of responding or acting. So he says, you Christians control your own body. Don't be like the Gentiles who just walk in the passion of their lust. And then he makes a, a, a little, uh, he, he, he tells us something important. The Gentiles do not know God. So I'd like to propose that what Paul is telling us, in a sense, is that a key to dealing with sexual immorality in our bodies and in the church is the knowledge of God. 
This is what separates these two groups of people. One group of people are commanded to control their bodies, and there's this other group of people who do not know God are basically said they can't control their bodies because they just walk on their passions. And if you think about someone who does not necessarily love God or, or the non-Christian life, it's a life, in a sense, of living for yourself. It's a life in which your goals are the goals. Your purposes are the purposes. And your agenda is the agenda. Your fulfillment is what you pursue. Your uh, joy is what you're going to pursue. That is what marks the life of someone who is not under Christ. Someone who does not know God. The difference with that group and the Christian is that the Christian, in theory, should be someone who understands that life is not about that, you anymore, about us anymore. That our purposes are not the purposes. Our purposes are God's purposes. Our joy is not in ourselves. Our joy is now in God. Our will is not whatever we want. It's not about what I think. It's not about my agenda. It's not about my opinions. We now have somebody above us who overrides our will, our agendas, our desires, our goals. And that is God. The Gentiles do not know God. We are commanded to control our bodies because we do know God. We have now a higher goal and a purpose, which is God himself and his glory. And that knowledge is the key to controlling yourself and abstaining from sexual immorality. When you become a Christian, we use the terminology of you accept Jesus as what? As your Lord? Meaning, you no longer own your own life. You have somebody that owns your life and your Savior, right? You were in, desperate, in a desperate situation. You were heading to disaster and condemnation, and you, you have somebody who came and took you out of that. So we owe our lives to Jesus. That knowledge, understanding that we no longer own ourselves or, 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 or do what we want, is the key or a key to abstaining from sexual immorality. And that's why we are commanded to live a life of sexual purity. Because our lives are not about us. Our lives are not about discovering or pleasing ourselves or our desires. Our lives now, as Christians, are all about what God says. So in a way, if you think about it, sexual immorality is a kind of selfishness. Sexual immorality, and this is true of most sins, but sexual immorality is acting upon my own passions, disregarding God and his desires. And as a consequence of that, we also end up disregarding other people. In fact, we not only disregard people, sexual immorality is not only disregarding people and God is also objectifying people. We turn people into objects that will provide pleasure for us. Sexual immorality is selfishness 
to the point of looking at, looking at another person as an object that will bring me pleasure. And this is how Paul's argument kind of goes, because he actually goes on to say in verse 6, do not transgress and wrong your brother or your sister in this matter. And this is important because we typically see sexual immorality as a sin that only affects us as individuals. We tend to think of sin as something that is just, again, between me and God. Just like last week we talked about, we tend to think that Christianity is this relationship between me and God and I don't need anybody else. So as long as I pray and read the Bible and go to church and don't do anything bad, I'm a good Christian. And that is not true. The same goes to sin. So as long as I sin and I repent to God and I keep it between me and him and I don't really affect anybody else, that's all I need to do, that is wrong too. Sexual immorality is a sin that not only affects us as individuals, but it affects our families, our churches, and our societies. And this has been true throughout history. Sexual sin is not just between you and God. Sexual sin has to, sexual sin has to do with how you see others. And this is an argument that we've actually talked about when it comes to racism, remember? It's not just how you act towards other people. It's how you see them. If you don't, you, you, you can be quiet the entire time, but if you look at somebody else and think that that person is less than you because of the color of, of their skin, you're already a racist. Even if you, if you smile on the outside, even if you attend a rally, whatever you do, if you think that somebody is, is less than you because of the color of their skin, you are already sinning. It's the exact same thing with sexual immorality. It doesn't matter how you act necessarily. It does matter, but it's, it's, it, it's not different from looking at another person as a sexual object. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Why? Because that person considers that woman an object. And that is the essence of the sin of sexual immorality. We have turned sex and sexual identity into what we want. It's all about me. It's all about my desires and my feelings and my views. And we have forgotten that as Christians, we no longer can say that. We have to submit our entire life under, the, under, under, under Scripture and say, whatever God says, that's what I'm going to do. This is not just an individual problem that Paul is calling us to abstain from. It's a collective problem that Paul is telling us to address. And Paul is saying, I'm telling you this so that no one transgress and wrong his brother in, his, in this matter. And it just gets more intense. Verse 6 
actually says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. The tra- another a synonym of avenger in the original word is punisher. Sexual impurity, sexual immorality will be punished. And I know that this is not the most joyful sermon you've ever heard. I am just a messenger. That's why we choose this kind of preaching, because it forces us to uh, approach and talk about what the Bible talks about. And this is, we're just following through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we just happen to land here this Sunday. This is not Chewy's agenda or Paul's agenda. This is God speaking through his word. Sexual impurity will be punished. Those who transgress their brother or sister or any other human being will be punished by the Lord in doing so. And Paul says, we told you beforehand and we warned you. This is not the first time that Paul tells this church about this. Objectifying others and acting upon it will be punished by a holy and just God. God will avenge and punish those who victimized people for the sake of their sexual pleasure. God will avenge the victim of sexual immorality and abuse. And we all need to hear and take this as a warning seriously. We all, the whole church, needs to be reminded of this constantly. And as as uncomfortable as this makes us, we need to hear it. We have entire denominations under investigation because of this. I wish I could tell you, trust me, I'm a pastor. I'm not going to do anything. But nowadays, it seems to be like, oh, no, I'm actually going to be more suspicious of you precisely because you're a pastor. And I wish it was just only a Catholic thing or a Mormon thing. It's not. We're not free of guilt at all. Sexual immorality, abuse, transgressing and wronging others, unfortunately, has plagued the church today. And this is something we need to talk about because it's pure selfishness. It's utilizing people for the sake of your own pleasure. And we need to be warned, and we need to hear. We will be punished if we transgress our brother and sister in this matter. And if you're a victim of sexual abuse, if you've been on the receiving end of this, and if you've been wronged and transgressed, you need to hear that you have a God who will avenge you He is on your side. God will punish that person. This is not a passive God who's just waiting. No, God will actively find and punish people who are not, 
who are acting in this way. God will act in your favor. He will not only act in by punishing the victimizer, but also by giving you the strength and the comfort and the healing that you need. He will walk closely with you. And there's hope for that. If you're a victim. But if you're struggling with sexual immorality, if you are objectifying other people and disregarding God himself, listen to this warning carefully. But even in the middle of your struggle, there is hope for us as well. Sanctification is not something that we are supposed to do on our own. Sanctification is a a work that we do along with God. We are commanded to do it, yet God does it with us as well. He doesn't leave us alone. He provides the resources and the strength for us to do it. And Paul actually says this in the last verse of this section as a part of the warning, in a sense giving the victimizer some hope as well. You can read it with me in the last two verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. He's sanctifying us. He's calling us to be separated from this world. Verse 8 says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, whoever doesn't listen to this, disregards not, not man, but God. If you don't listen to this warning, you're not listening to God himself. And then the note at the end is important who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And this is the best hope we can all have. We can only overcome this by the power of the Holy Spirit. There is no human way to overcome sexual immorality other than through a supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this on our own. We need the Holy Ghost. And this is where the gospel comes to life. Because as a Christian, and even as a non-Christian, there's only one way we can access the Holy Spirit. And it's through Jesus Christ. The the Holy Spirit is the gift, is the seal, the inheritance of those who have believed in the gospel and submitted their lives to Jesus. And what is this gospel? The gospel is that we are all sinners, that we have already transgressed God's limits for us, that we are all selfish, that we all care about ourselves, and that we were heading straight to condemnation and hell because we were living a life when we were constantly saying, I don't care about you, God, so I'm just going to walk this way, the opposite of where you are, and the opposite of where God is, is hell. Because in hell there is no God, there is no good, there is no hope, there is no peace, that is hell. It's the completion of your abandonment and our abandonment of God. That is hell. And that's what we continue to choose without Christ. Forget you, God. I'm going in this direction. And God, in his love, he said, I'm coming for you. We were walking that way uh, with our backs to, to him, and he came, and he grabbed us, and he saved us, and he loved us, and he gave his life for us on the cross, and he was punished on our place. And he bled because of our sin. And instead of being selfish, he gave his life for us. 
Instead of looking or searching and seeking for his own pleasure, he gave himself up in suffering for us. And this is the God that we have. And he saves us, he defeats our sin, and he defeats death, and he defeats Satan, and he takes us back to his kingdom, and he grabs us and holds, holds on to us, and he's now walking with us towards eternity, and we did nothing about it. We didn't do anything about it. And even in this, we're struggling and kicking, and we want to go back to our old ways, and he's like, here, I'm going to give you a gift, part of myself a helper so that you can actually do this. It's called the Holy Spirit. And only through Jesus Christ, only through accepting and repenting and humbling before Jesus, we are given this Holy Spirit who is our helper, who is our counselor, who is our guidance, who is our, the person who empowers us and indwells us and fills us. And that's the only way we can conquer sexual immorality. So if you're not a Christian today, I want to tell you this is available to you. This is up for grabs. What is it that you need to do? Nothing. Just come to Christ, close your eyes, pray to Him, accept Him as your Lord and Savior, and recognize that you are heading towards condemnation and that you need desperate help. And He will come like this and help you and give you His Spirit. And if you are a Christian... You already have access to the Holy Spirit. You don't have to fight on your own. The problem, though, is that as Christians, we tend to just kind of forget about the Holy Spirit and put it in a shelf. Especially in Reformed circles, we're scared of the Holy Spirit. And we have everything we need in Him. To the point that God says, Jesus told his disciples, on that day when they, when they take you in front of the synagogues and they, and, and they punish you for being a Christian and for following me, and don't worry about what you're going to say. Guess what? I'm going to send you somebody who's going to tell you exactly what to say. So God, through his spirit, is going to help us in every way. Most of us are battling with things that are like sexual immorality, and we're trying to do it on our own. We are scrambling left and right to try to find a solution, and it's there. He's there to help us. He's there to empower us. His fruits are joy, self-control, peace, all kinds of things. He can fill you up. But we have sort of put him in a, in a drawer, and we forget about him. If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to pursue the Holy Spirit and to run to him in prayer. Talk to him. Make it a priority. It's not enough just to come to church. We have to take advantage of the weapons that we have through the Holy Spirit in prayer, in fasting, in solitude. If there is a problem that is messing up your life, make it a priority to be with God. Spend time in prayer. Not just the devotion. Depend on him. And as much as we have the Holy Spirit as a weapon and as a tool and as a resource, as a helper, the Holy Spirit also moves us to others. And I want to make sure we understand this. 
being a Christian is not about you and God. It's about you, God, and others. Your sin is not about you and God. It's how your sin affects others as well. And the solution is not just you and the Holy Spirit only. The solution includes the Holy Spirit and God and Jesus Christ and all that we have in Him, but He's given us others as well. And specifically when it comes to sexual immorality, I want to encourage all of us to open up and seek help from other Christians. We've heard this before, but sin festers in dark places. Bring it to light. And let me tell you, you're not the only one. Let me tell you, we're all dealing with this. It's incredible. But the last numbers, the, the, the last numbers of Christians watching pornography daily are close to 70%. And guess what? That is not very different from non-Christians. I think we were like 1% or 2% lower. So let me tell you, chances are, if you confess a sexual sin to somebody in your church, that person is most likely dealing with something similar as well. We all deal with it. I deal with it. I'm a pastor. I'm no better than you. I have to be accountable to my wife. I have to be accountable to people. I have to have things in my phone, in my computers that will prevent me from doing things I don't want to do. This is not an easy thing. This is something that Paul is talking about to a church that seems fine on the outside. So I don't care how you look on the outside or how your marriage looks on the outside. We are all in desperate need. This is an urgent call from Paul to address sexual immorality in our churches and in our lives and in our marriages. And it's time that we take off this idea or mask that we are all a beautiful church that is holy and perfect. We're not. And the media knows it and the world knows it. And if we're Christians, the first step to becoming a Christian is to re recognize how awful your sin is. And to go to Jesus and accept his forgiveness. And the only way we're going to get out of this is through the power of the Holy Spirit and the community, that we the community that we have around us. Reach out to God. Reach out to people. You don't have to fight alone. God has given you everything you need to be free in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you in humility. We come before you knowing that we are in desperate need of you. We are sinners. We are weak. But you are strong. You are holy and you are God. God, help us hear this warning. Help us make note of it and address our sexual immorality, individually and collectively. God, we need you. God, we desperately need you. I pray that you would give us the courage to, to reach out to you, to humble ourselves before you, and also the courage 
to reach out and humble ourselves before others. Lord, purify us. Lord, help us, sanctify us. Holy Spirit, fill us and give us the strength we need. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.